Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey everyone, Dan Amender here. Welcome back to Narratives in Cardiology, designed to make cardiology a more inclusive space for everyone. Usually, Ahmed kicks off these episodes, but he's off saving lives in the cath lab, so it's my time to shine. I'm here with fellow CardiNerds, Dr. Gurleen Kaur, intern at Brigham Women's Hospital and director of the CardiNerds Internship, and Dr. Eunice Dugan, cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic and infographics faculty in the CardiNerds Academy, and Dr. Zarina Sharalaya, interventional and structural fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. So join us, everyone, as Air Force CardiNerds descends into Newark, New Jersey, to discuss radiation safety and women in interventional cardiology. But first, Gurleen, take my job. What's the weather like today? And it's 55 degrees down here in New Jersey with gloomy, cloudy skies, which is warmer than normal winter weather, but typical of the Northeast with its constant variability. But I think we have better things to than to worry about the weather because we're in for a treat here with Dr. Sani, who's here with us in CardioNerds. So it's such an honor to be able to welcome a very special guest to represent the New Jersey ACP chapter for the Narratives and Cardiology series, Dr. Sheila Sani. Dr. Sani is an interventional cardiologist and director of the Women's Heart Program at the Sani Health Center in Clark, New Jersey. She began her career at Georgetown University, where she completed her undergraduate and medical school education. From there, she moved to New York City to do her medicine residency at Mount Sinai, and then flew to the opposite coast, probably more sunnier weather there than the East Coast, to do her general cardiology and interventional cardiology fellowships at UCLA, where she also served as a chief fellow. After training, she decided to join her father in clinical practice back in her hometown of New Jersey. She had served on both the ACC Women in Cardiology Committee as well as the Sky Women in Innovations Committee and was also chosen to be a part of the ACC's prestigious Leadership Academy. As if she wasn't busy enough with all of these roles, she's also made an impressive mark on the impact of social media to promote heart health with her presence on Instagram and Twitter, among other platforms, along with time that she had spent being a medical expert on the TBS TNT acclaimed medical series called Chasing the Cure. Welcome to Cardi Nerds, Dr. Sani. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for the wonderful introduction and for the opportunity. It's incredible what you all are doing here at Cardio Nerds. I listen to you guys all the time driving to work or at night, and I love meeting all of you because I've heard you all on the podcast, and it's like I'm meeting my own little celebrity group here. <laughs> Thank you so much for what you're doing. I wish I had cardio nerds when I was training, but I'm really glad I have it now. It's a real honor for me to be able to share my narrative and be a part of this. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So great to have you here, Dr. Sani. So just to start off, I wanted to ask you about an area that you have dedicated some of your time and career researching, one that's extremely important to all practicing interventional cardiologists, which is radiation exposure. And as a woman in cardiology, when I was in general cardiology fellowship, I had a lot of concerns and apprehension about pursuing intervention just due to uncertainty about radiation exposure and work-life integration. So as I started doing my own research and looking at the literature to see if there was any hard data about this, I felt like it was a sign that intervention was going to be my destiny after I read through your incredible work, which you did with Women as One on radiation safety, particularly as it relates to women in cardiology. 
So I was just so relieved to see that this ominous question that's been out there for so long regarding the safety and feasibility of being pregnant in the cath lab, it was so clearly addressed with the website and it has hard literature and also narration of all the important facts related to this topic. So I really urge all women considering a career which involves radiation to check out this website, rad.womenas1.org for more details on this. But can you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to study radiation safety and create this wonderful resource for others? Yeah, absolutely. I dealt with similar concerns just like you. In fact, I recall expressing interest in the field of interventional cardiology many times when I was a resident like Erlene in the CCU at Sinai. And many professional colleagues, even personal friends, would suggest that imaging was the new frontier that was coming about and that it would probably be more friendly for me as a woman, easier on my lifestyle, which we all chose to be cardiologists. We all take all. But I was definitely surrounded by a group of individuals that were almost like trying to encourage me to consider a different field from interventional. And it was exciting. There was a lot of research I started doing with ECHO, but I, I know I'm not alone in my experience. And I think women are often faced with similar experiences when exploring interventional interventional cardiology, and then often can be given a lot of misinformation regarding risk. And that can literally change their career path forever. Once I knew I wanted to pursue interventional cardiology and I wanted to do this for my life's purpose and career, I wanted to become my own advocate for understanding and really committing to having knowledge on radiation safety and what my exposure risk would be. And I think that that kind of jet set, this whole interest in wanting to create advocacy for women all over to understand radiation safety measures, as well as our exposure risk, like you were alluding to, it really became a passion project of mine. And so I sought out opportunities to speak on this topic, to help inform women who had been struggling. Because when you look at the data, what you find consistently is that female cardiologists are known to avoid pregnancy during periods of radiation exposure and that they underutilize radiation reduction and monitoring strategies. So that's something that had to be targeted. And then we have a huge unmet need in terms of education in this regard. There's no national standard by ACGME for radiation safety training for cardiology fellows. So during my time in the ACC WIC committee, I had the opportunity to present this topic which piqued the interest of many local chapters that wanted me to come and speak on radiation safety measures as well as exposure risk for women, such as the Delaware and Pennsylvania chapter. And ultimately, Women as One caught wind of these lectures that I was giving and they recruited me to create this digital webinar. And here we sought to create a webinar that would be a universal resource that could inform women globally on radiation exposure recommendations and safety during fluoroscopy use and exposure during training or even their early career. What was incredible about the webinar was its national and international endorsements with societies such as Sky, HRS, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, EAPCI, Selassie in Latin America, and even the Japanese Circulation Society, which really allowed us to amplify the message to women worldwide. Dr. Shani, thank you so much for sharing that. I have to say, um, hearing about your proactiveness and advocacy in this arena is so inspiring to hear. And I, again, want to echo for our listeners to check out rad.womenas1.org for this great resource. Dr. Shani, would you please share your main takeaways, especially for those who remain apprehensive about procedural subspecialties, specifically due to concern about occupational radiation exposure. What are your takeaways from your work? 
You know, I just want to echo what you said. I would really encourage all listeners to go deep with the webinar and really listen, especially with respect to learning techniques of how to protect yourself, what the proper way to wear the equipment, as well as how to manage the equipment in the room and your distancing. All of that I go into in detail. There's some great charts and images, but there are some key points I want everyone to note even if this is the only time they're going to hear it. And it's going to be a little bit in terms of radiation physics information, but it's important for us to understand what are the national regulatory guidelines that have been set forth. And so we have a National Council for Radiation Protection, the NCRP, and they have put forth a guideline that the monthly equivalent dose limit for a pregnant worker with respect to embryo and fetus exposure is 0.5 millisieverts. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the NRC, has put together a limit for the entire gestation, which is no more than 5 millisieverts or 5,000 microsieverts. So up to these regulatory dose limits, there has been no evidence of any congenital malformation or any cancers that are different from background radiation. And that's really important to know. So the dose limits that have been set forth by regulatory societies are at a limit that up to that limit and even below that, it's no different from background radiation. So as long as you follow those dose limits, you really are protected in terms of being no different from if you were not even working in the cath lab. Putting this into context then, for all of us, right? All of us have exposure to the cath lab. We're interested in the field. What does this mean? So Cleveland Clinic did a contemporary study in 2018, and they looked at occupational fetal dose averages amongst all x-ray departments. So again, for the entire gestation, you're looking at 5,000 microsieverts and you don't want to exceed that. Well, amongst all x-ray departments, the fetal dose exposure never exceeded 280 microsieverts. So you have a limit of 5,000, but these x-ray departments never exceeded 280. And when you looked at cardiac EP as a subset of those departments, it was even less. It was 125 microsieverts. So Basically, the underlead dose of a pregnant interventionalist during the entire gestation is often never more than 0.3 millisieverts, and your dose limit is 5 millisieverts. So it's really important to know that. When you actually equate that to what the fetus is getting, it's 0.09 millisieverts, which is negligible. When you compare it to background radiation, is actually 3 millisieverts. So I tested this out as soon as I became an attending in my early career. I really wanted to adopt this. And what women need to know is that you need to get a third badge. So normally we wear one. Dan knows he wears one on his thyroid collar. He wears one outside on his apron. But we as women, when we're pregnant and we declare pregnancy, we're going to wear one inside our skirt. And so I asked for one early and I just wanted to collect the data. And what I found was that my own personal collection with my case volume, I was pleasantly surprised to see that I was always under the recommended radiation dose limit for pregnant women. And that comment and that data is actually universal amongst many of the interventionalists that I've spoken to. It was a major confidence boost for me personally and professionally in preparation for the real thing. And it's important, I think, personally and professionally to know this because you're going to be surrounded by colleagues who are going to make comments, advise you to do one thing or another and really try to direct you perhaps out of the cath lab. And that was what a lot of the global interventionalists were facing as well. So understanding this for yourself is really important for your own advocacy. 
Thank you, Dr. Sarvi, for sharing all that information about radiation risk in the cath lab during pregnancy. I remember shadowing in the cath lab as a medical student and really being fascinated by all aspects of it. I find it quite silly now looking back, but I remember at the time I was concerned about the lead not fitting me. I didn't realize that at that time they kind of fitted lead because the template size lead was quite large. It looked pretty ridiculous on me as a short person. But since then, I've learned that you can have fitted lead. And it's great to worry about your work at Woman as One about all the work that you've done in looking into radiation exposure. And I think a lot has been done in the aspect of social media, really showing women in cardiology being in the cath lab with hashtags such as take a woman to the cath lab, as well as just seeing the strong community of interventional cardiologists that are female. And kind of going off of that in terms of social media and its role in both promoting women in interventional cardiology, but also spreading awareness about heart health. I know you've been a leading figure in promoting heart health on social media. And I remember first coming to Frats to your Instagram, Pedro, two years ago, when I saw your post about hosting the heart art event for women in the local community at JFK Medical Center in Edison, New Jersey, where women got together to paint and share stories and at the same time learned about the high prevalence of heart disease in women and how to prevent it. And I actually grew up in Edison, which is a town with a diverse population, including a large South Asian population. And I think I've witnessed with like family, relatives, and just the community that South Asian women can often put their own health on the back burner. And I was wondering if you could share your experiences with raising awareness of cardiovascular disease in women and specifically within the New Jersey community and how that went about in terms of establishing your women's heart program at the Saini Heart Center. Yes, absolutely. It's so nice to know a fellow New Jerseyan. Um, you know, the reason why I wanted to start a woman's heart program was that I identified a serious unmet need in treating women with heart disease. And I noticed that in my fellowship and even probably before that. When I arrived in New Jersey, though, my observation was further validated, similar to what you alluded to. I had so many women bringing their husbands into my office and they were neglecting themselves, just that you alluded to. So, as I began taking care of patients in the community setting, this observation of this unmet need was further solidified and validated. And I saw an opportunity to begin a discussion with our system leadership on ways that we could solve this problem and really bridge this gap where I felt that we had a missed opportunity of taking care of women in the community and helping them understand their risk of cardiovascular disease. But what I realized quickly is that it takes a village. It's required really strong leadership skills to negotiate with stakeholders within my health system to get this program up and running. And I really leaned on my training and my mentors from the ACC Leadership Academy to help me navigate pivotal discussions surrounding fiscal and professional support for the program. I had just delivered a pitch to the Department of Cardiology meeting in March of 2020. And then COVID happened. So we were just about to get funding and a space to consolidate and really bring everything together. The pitch went really well, but everything went on hold. Luckily, one of my incredible mentors who you've had on the podcast as well, Dr. Gina Lundberg, had always encouraged me to launch the program within my practice, which is what I did. Launching the Woman's Heart Program at Sani Heart Center actually allowed me to continue my community outreach alongside the pandemic and also virtually. And it allowed me to at least continue the outreach for the infrastructure and the support for a larger program that I hope will one day exist within our major health system and Hackensack Meridian Health. 
Oh, thank you so much for that, Dr. Sani. And uh, a few things. Number one is while I'm more of a New York boy, Rockland County, I spent many, many hours and days driving around Mawa. So it's more Northern Jersey, but I definitely feel a strong, strong, strong connection. I have a lot of siblings in Bergenfield and Hillside and Fairlawn. So I'm very well versed and really feel connected to the Jersey community. So anyway, there's that. And then also Amin and I had the privilege and honor to partner with Women Heart as part of our Cardio B series. And so we got to meet Women Heart champions and also obviously Dr. Wanger and Dr. Hayes. And we even did some episodes with Women Heart champions. And so we got a glimpse at what it means to have that camaraderie within uh, women's cardiovascular health and patient advocacy. And just hearing your work in Jersey, it's very inspiring and it really connects to that broader networking goal of bringing people together to collaborate, innovate, and then also support each other. So that's really, really wonderful to hear about. And lastly, Gurleen, oh my gosh, when I started coming to the cath lab, lead finding was like the most anxiety producing thing for me because I was like, do I even belong? The lead doesn't fit. And also I too didn't know that you needed fitted lead or at least lead that should fit you. And I just put on the biggest pair that I found and uh, I had tremendous back pain like a couple of days later. And I was like, oh my God, if I have so much back pain from the lead, I'll never be an interventional cardiologist. And then I was taught otherwise. So anyways, all that aside, Dr. Sani, you have become an expert in women's heart health early in your career and even established a women's heart program, as Gurleen mentioned. Do you have any advice to help trainees and even early career faculty understand how to become an expert in a niche field that doesn't have a set pathway for training? And did you have a mentor? I know you talked about Dr. Gina Lundberg, who we absolutely love, 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 but maybe you could expound on that or even just uh, or talk about other mentors that you've learned from or even participated in workshops to help you craft the career that you have been crafting for yourself. Yes, I have to say, Gurleen, I totally missed that comment about I want it, you know, it's so important to have lead that fits you. And what happens a lot when women have larger lead is that they are exposing so much of their breasts. So I'm so happy that both of you have brought up the importance of fitted lead because that's a real highlight of the webinar. And it's something we can all advocate for when we're talking to our program directors and putting it in the budget. But yes, when it comes to wanting to understand or develop a niche field, mentorship is key. Because as you've alluded to, there aren't necessarily set subspecialty training pathways for wanting to understand women in cardiovascular disease. It's almost a niche field that you have to carve out for yourself sometimes. And for me, mentorship was really the avenue for which I was able to build the skill set. So I identified a mentor locally as well as mentors nationally. Locally, I worked directly with my program director, uh, a mentor and a friend, Dr. Carol Watson, who is the director of UCLA's Women's Cardiovascular Center. And in my work with her, I learned a wide array of skills from patient care to philanthropy to community outreach to marketing strategies and business planning. And it was an invaluable experience. It was a complete highlight of my training. I probably missed working in that clinic the most during my IC training at UCLA, but I would still sneak out and have a couple of sessions in the Women's Heart Clinic every now and then. But I also saw the value of seeking mentorship outside my institution because ultimately when you're thinking about a niche field and you're thinking about growing it in your own garden, right? of New Jersey, which is very different from UCLA and Los Angeles, I wanted to understand how the niche can be performed as it applies to various settings. And so I would lean on my national mentors, such as 
Dr. Gina Lundberg, Dr. Annabelle Volgman, Dr. Lachmi Mehta, Dr. Martha Galati. These were all mentors that I would approach during national meetings and that I knew through the ACC. And it really allowed me to further create meaningful relationships with them to solidify this goal that I had. Thank you so much, Dr. Storney, for all those insights. And it's just been so great to hear about your professional accomplishments and the pension that you have for both interventional cardiology, radiation safety, and women's heart health. And on these podcasts for the American Cardiology series, along with learning about the professional journeys of our guests, we also really like to understand more about your personal journey and how you chose the fields in cardiology and interventional cardiology. So to just start off, what was the moment that you decided that you wanted to become a cardiologist? And at what point did you decide you wanted to become an interventional cardiologist? So I went to the School of Nursing and Health Studies at Georgetown. And so I was a human science major, which meant by sophomore year, I was learning about pathophysiology and pharmacology. And when I learned about the cardiac cycle, it was all over for me there. I mean, the dynamicism of the heart was just exhilarating. I was so excited. I loved it. And once I got into medical school, I just solidified that passion. And it really came through fourth year when I was doing a sub-eye rotation. And I walked into the echo lab for a patient that we were looking at the echo on that we were going to round on later. And when I saw the valves moving, when I saw the dynamic nature of this organ and the fact that we're going to now take this data point and we're going to bring it to the bedside, I was so moved by this field that had so many different data elements to really kind of solidify a diagnosis. That's when I knew I loved cardiology, but it was kind of a passion that was building slowly along the road. And when I matched at Sinai and I kind of already alluded to kind of being pushed into imaging, I did actually pursue cardiovascular imaging. I casted a very wide net when I applied for a fellowship and what was interesting was what happened when I was a first-year fellow. I was so excited to be in the cath lab. I mean, I absolutely loved interventional cardiology. I loved being on call in the CCU, bringing the cases to the cath lab, whether it was STEMI, SHOP, or VT. And at the same time, I was working on my imaging skills. I scrubbed like 65 tabbers. I was intubating with the probe. And I remember struggling because I put so much pressure on myself, whereas getting access Flushing catheters, engaging the coronary vessels was really quite natural for me. And it ultimately, there was an inflection moment with an attending who noticed my skill at the end of my first year. And as I reflect on my journey, I'm so grateful for his comment, which was, are you sure you don't want to do this? Because you've got great hands. And I realized there that there's such a misconception where people feel that you can't get involved in interventional, right? Because of radiation exposure or because of an aggressive call schedule, such as STEMI, right? It's not going to be fit for women, but we all chose to go into cardiology. I started telling myself, wait, I'm coming in to see the patient anyway. Might as well do the case. So what really happened was I had lined up my second year cardiology fellowship to do all these imaging electives because I wanted to apply to an imaging subspecialty field. And Within two weeks of my first imaging rotation, I couldn't connect with it. And I started to recognize that I needed to really ask myself what was moving me. And it was being in the cath lab. And so what I did at that moment was I switched everything. I spoke to the chief fellows. And at UCLA, we did two-week rotations at a time. I signed up for a month of cath. And I really wanted to immerse myself and address those fears. Like, can I really do this? And if I can do this, what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like? And I put myself in that mindset and asking myself, would I still be happy? And I loved it. 
I loved it. It was about halfway through that I actually started. My father is an interventional cardiologist and I waited to tell him because I really wanted to be 100% sure and that I really didn't want anything but his utmost support. And he could hear how much I loved it. And he was in full support of it. And I think the reason why I bring him up is because I still wanted to prove it to myself. And I asked for him to go to TCT with me. So we're talking about fall 2014. Him and I went to TCT together. It was in DC that year. And we were sitting through the live cases. And I'll never forget, I looked over at him and I was like, do you really think I could do this? And he was like, absolutely. This is what you want to do. And I was like, I love it. It's what I want to do. And I think hearing it from him and it really why I wanted to share it on cardio nerves and especially a part of my narrative was that I think that having anybody who can believe in you when you are really passionate about something is really all you need because we all have a very unique skill set. And I think that the passion is what's going to carry you through. It's not about being male or female or pregnant or not pregnant. It's about what do you love to do and how can you master it so that you enjoy everything about taking care of patients? Because I can't imagine caring for patients without my interventional skill set. And I'm kind of grateful for how I arrived at the process. Dr. Sani, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, your passion and love for cardiology and interventional cardiology really just it pops off the screen and it's infectious. I mean, I think you've convinced Gurleen and me and probably everyone listening to go to go through with this. So it's it's just really great to hear and it's really great to see. So I think there's a lot of ways many different people carve out their careers. And for those of us who are training, we usually are exposed only to practicing in an academic setting. And we're often not aware of what it's like to work in a private practice setting. And, you know, there's also some other assumptions about private practice that we don't really know about, but we hear maybe that it is harder to develop a strong network and that it may be hard to take on national and state level leadership roles and within professional societies. You have, however, as we heard, continued to be involved in multiple leadership positions, including in ACC and Sky committees. So what went into your decision to choose a private practice route? And how has that experience been in terms of navigating your career, developing connections with cardiologists elsewhere, and growing as a leader in this field? It was a very difficult decision. I really enjoyed training in the academic setting. It afforded me, like so many of us, right, so many opportunities to expose myself to advanced techniques, research, thought leaders. So making the decision to ultimately lead to private practice was very difficult because I didn't want to lose that. I didn't want to lose my access to all the things that I had trained in and that I love. But in retrospect, it was the best decision for me personally and professionally. There was a moment halfway through my interventional year where I received very precious guidance from my interventional program director, Dr. Ravi Dave, who knew that I was kind of struggling with this decision, knew that I had a lot of national obligations with speaking engagements. I was preparing for a lecture that year at ACC on Les Main. And I remember approaching him and he really explained to me that there would be a way to do both. And he helped me see that being able to walk into a practice that's ready-made is going to give you immediate volume and access to that complex caseload that I was looking for that I was also being asked to speak on. So 
he really helped assure my mind and that I would be able to maintain my professional affiliations and involvement in national meetings because I would be actually be doing the complexities that I'm passionate to speak on. At the same time, it was very important for me to be clear to my father, my now partner, that my goals were much larger, that I wasn't coming back to New Jersey to do anything other than something really big. And Dr. Dave encouraged me to actually write out the Women's Heart Program in my contract as a signal that I would be joining with an ambition and a specific goal in mind in bringing something to elevate the practice. But ultimately, the decision was personal. It was a very unique opportunity for me to work alongside my father, my mentor, in many ways, my inspiration, who has been building this practice for over 35 years. But with that came a very steep learning curve because the way cardiology is practiced in the community and in the private sector is so very different from academic medicine. And there were a lot of growing pains. But almost five years later now, I am so grateful for the decision because it provided me with an opportunity to bring my advanced training and academic work to the community setting for patients who don't have access to larger cities where a lot of my colleagues are. And I feel like I've been able to impact more patients' lives. And while at the same time, I've been able to maintain and grow my network locally and nationally, in many ways, I've built a unique perspective for my peers as someone who's had both experiences in both the academic and community setting. Thank you for that, Dr. Sani. Just to sort of backtrack to your reasons for choosing intervention, that was such an amazing story and just following your passion. And I'm actually working on a study right now with the ACC on the overall culture of interventional cardiology and how how and if it's changed over the last few decades. And one of the things that came out from the survey is that women are actually five times more likely than men to be discouraged from pursuing IC. So kind of a similar experience from my perspective and your perspective, it sounds like, for all the reasons that were alluded to so far in this podcast. But it's a pretty disappointing statistic. But I think it's just so important to continue to get your message out about pursuing your passion and in particular about radiation safety and that it is very possible to have a family and be a female interventionalist so that we can change these stats and the the overall gender discrepancy that exists in intervention. So I also, I wanted to ask you about a subject that hits pretty close to home for me. And based on your social media, I expect that it may hit close to home for you too. It sounds like you'll be expecting a little girl in the next few months. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Indeed, we are. My husband and I could not be happier for this next chapter in our life together. We're so excited to become parents. And, you know, one of the greatest parts of moving back was that I met my husband in New York shortly after I arrived. So here we are. That's amazing. I'm actually also expecting my first in May, also a girl. And it's also, it's been just an interesting journey to be pregnant while training. But just to share a bit of my experience in case it helps any other trainees out there who are considering intervention. Overall, to be honest, I was pretty apprehensive about the idea of being pregnant while doing my interventional training. And I think it's a bit of a catch-22 because on one hand, you want to focus your attention 100% to training and getting the most out of your limited time that you're in training. But on the other hand, as a woman, Obviously, many are waiting to start a family until later and later in their childbearing years to focus more on work. And during that time, it may uh, become more challenging to have a family from a fertility perspective. So I think that it's just important to keep priorities in perspective and realize that there will never be really a perfect time, especially as a woman in medicine, to start a family. Your work will always be there, but there's no, no substitute for family life. So with that being said, 
I have been very pleasantly surprised and fortunate to have been in a very supportive environment during my pregnancy. My co-fellows have been great and the program administration has been really accommodating. And I've been able to attend all of my OB appointments as scheduled and maternity leave is also going to be thankfully very feasible without extending training. So I personally have been very lucky to have had minimal disturbances to my training, if any at all, so far due to pregnancy. So it is very possible and feasible to be pregnant during intervention fellowship. But Dr. Sani, I would love to hear more about your experience and also what your thoughts are about work-life harmony for the female interventionalist. No, your apprehensions that you had were so, so normal and they resonate with so many women. But congratulations for doing it. Your story needs to be told. So many women need to hear that you were pregnant during your structural fellowship and that you had a supportive and positive experience. And I'm so happy to hear that you have been. My cardiology program director, Dr. Carol Watson, said something to me that I'll never forget. She told me that our careers can wait, but family planning cannot. And if you're fortunate enough to have the opportunity to start a family, even if it's during your training, you should. We're at a stage now where programs have acknowledged the importance of supporting women through their life stages of family planning. Your case is an example of that. And, you know, I, I just want to reiterate how happy I am to hear how you've been supported. And with respect to me, my situation is relatively unique because I'm an attending. I'm not in an academic setting. As a private practice owner, I have a lot more control and autonomy over my schedule. But where I really had to flex in terms of preparing for where I am right now was in managing my workload to make family planning a priority. And those changes were absolutely necessary to get to where I am right now on this path to parenthood. It took me about a year, an entire year, to undo what I had been doing, which was saying yes to every opportunity I was being given. I was so programmed from training to say yes that I quickly realized that this is not sustainable. And I wasn't getting the same joy out of my obligations personally and professionally. And as my dream of my practice growing came true, I could feel myself struggling because of that. So during the pandemic, I had the chance to slow down and reevaluate what I really did want to say yes to. And now I have real joy in those professional activities, such as this podcast. By slowing down, I feel like I opened up a room to really enjoy where I am right now. Because at the same time that I'm choosing what I say yes to and really enjoying it, I also have more time to be present when I spend time with my husband, my family, my friends, in a way that I wasn't previously. Regarding work-life harmony, I love how Dr. Park put it. It's really about work-life integration. And I think some major keys to success with that are strong communication with your partner, openness about what's important to you, knowing that you can't be everywhere, and lastly, being honest about your time, setting realistic expectations so you can thrive rather than feeling like you're dragging. I think those are some real keys for work-life integration. 
Dr. Sani, thank you so much for that. And when I think about this topic, my head goes straight to one of my heroes in cardiology, and that's my co-fellow, Dr. Jackie Latina. We're currently both structural fellows together at Johns Hopkins, and she and I were interventional fellows last year. And she ended up having her baby a little bit early, or probably a lot early. Teddy, who's a superman, healthy young man growing up in his own right right now. And there was something very special about how the whole program kicked in to become part of her extended family. The cath lab director, Dr. Risar, you could just see he really views Jackie and her extended family as his own children. Dr. Ronnie Hassan, my program director as well, Dr. Zardi as well, and really the entire cath lab staff like really mobilized to become her family. And again, just like, as you said earlier, having a support system is just absolutely critical And I was so honored to be part of that support system this year as basically she went through the different stages and phases of Teddy being in the hospital and eventually coming home. And we all celebrated together and it was just so nice. But I think that the entire program actually became better for it. Yes, she definitely needed the support, but the actual program was elevated because of the way that they showed that support and the way that they prioritized family values. So that's something that I got out of this year, just being part of that entire experience. Dr. Sani, in thinking about the field of interventional cardiology, it is very disheartening to see the tremendous gender gap that exists. These statistics are really mind-boggling, to be honest. And that's why we're working so hard as we speak. Considering the sad statistic that only 4% of interventional cardiologists are women with similar numbers in electrophysiology. So what are your thoughts on this and how could we work towards attracting more women into this incredible, as you are basically displaying to all, this incredible, incredible, exciting subspecialty? It's true, but we have to keep pressing forward and continue to share stories like this. I think Zarina's story has to be showcased and societies are helping, right? We have the ACC WIC committee. We also have SKIES, Women in Innovations Committee that's really helping to grab more opportunities for mentorship, catching women early on, like at Gurleen's stage where they're in residency. But it's also important to recognize that you've got to choose the subspecialty that you love, regardless of your gender. I chose an interventional cardiology because I loved it. Gender shouldn't play a role in our professional career choice. We've already invested so much time into getting where we are. And so I think that women, regardless of their career path, have to acknowledge that they have to be honest with themselves. How they're going to manage their personal life and family will always be on the table, especially if they want a family, whether you are an interventionalist or an EP or a heart failure doctor or imaging or a general cardiologist. If you're interested in having work-life integration, it's going to be relevant to you regardless of your subspecialty. So I think we have to be honest with ourselves that interventional or EP is not going to necessarily make that more difficult. And we need to share, we need to share more stories of how women are doing it how they're doing it, and women need to see women doing it. You know, it's nice to know that Serena has been exposed to my Instagram because it was really, a, again, just a very authentic passion project to share that I'm a woman in the cast lab having a really good time so that women who feel the spirit and that joy after a case can actually resonate with another woman who is doing it for their real life career. So I think that this is the narrative that women need to hear that they need to understand, that it's about finding your passion and then providence follows suit. You will find the strength to make it work if you want a family and you will find the way to navigate how to integrate that so that you can have the best of both worlds. But I think that we're really fortunate to have women as one, as an organization that's 
really making progress in supporting women in the interventional cardiology community, not just nationally, but globally. And, um, you know, a lot of early career women interventionalists need a lot of support in many different European countries. And Women as One has really been there for them, but it's also been there for early career interventionalists like myself, they have an amazing program called Klein, where they keep women connected to industry partners. And it, I think it's an incredible support network that allows women to feel connected to other women and allow them to kind of navigate the complexities of womanhood within the field of interventional cardiology. Thank you so much, Dr. Sani, for sharing your stories, narrative and journey. And it's been so inspiring to hear about your passion for the field. And I definitely love hearing all the stories that people share with their personal experiences in cardiology as well as interventional cardiology. And I think as we like progress in our trainings, we sometimes learn new things about the role that we're in that we originally hadn't expected or anticipated. So I was wondering what has surprised you the most about a career in interventional cardiology and what are some things that you didn't realize about the field earlier on in training, like when you were a resident? You know, Outside of your skill set, which you're going to gain when you're a fellow, a general fellow and an interventional fellow, and that skill set's going to be very much personal. I think what really gets missed is that interventional cardiology is not a standalone show. It is just not a standalone show. And I put so much pressure on myself when I was getting close to graduation. I remember meeting with my program director like halfway through telling him that I, I wonder if I'm competent in these things, doing them on my own. And he was like, wait a second, we're only halfway through fellowship. You know, I was really challenging myself thinking that I am going to be alone. And I will say in the practice setting that I am in, because I work in cath labs that don't necessarily have cardiothoracic support. So I'm limited in what I can do in a certain hospital. And in many times I am alone. But what I created in New Jersey was I found a way to create a network of interventional cardiologists that I can collaborate with. And that I also just finally stood up to the fact that I was okay collaborating with my dad. You know, initially I didn't want to. I didn't want people to think that I'm scrubbing with my dad and I need his support. So I was proving it to myself. But after about three and a half years, I realized I was taking my cases to another hospital outside the state when I was perfectly trained to use a certain device in New Jersey and do it on my own. But I just wanted backup, like we all do. And the easiest backup was going to be the person whose schedule aligns with mine. And honestly, I've never felt more joy than starting to do the cases on my own with professional backup. And I think that what we need to understand about interventional cardiology, especially the field of structural, Everything is done team-based, you know, big cases. When you look at live case operators, no one's standing alone. Everybody's with someone else because there's legit operator fatigue. And you can create that in private practice too. In fact, it's so much more of a kinder atmosphere than it is a not kind atmosphere. I can't think of the right word. In other words, I think there's misconceptions that people won't want to help you, that people won't want to see you succeed. But we all have the same goal, which is to bring out the best outcome for a patient. And just to give you a personal story, I mean, I've met some incredible physicians that they themselves are part of different groups in different private practices, and they collaborate so beautifully together. Many of them have trained together and they're all in different practices. And then they were so grateful when I started bringing my own cases to the hospital. They wanted me to enroll in trials. And I think that's the narrative about interventional cardiology that people won't necessarily know is that you you think that you're going to be standing alone. And sometimes you are. Sometimes you are alone. You are the woman or the man in that arena. 
and you trade for that. But when it comes to a case that's difficult or help that you need, it's there. And it's very important to establish that when you join any new cath lab or any new work position is find out who can you align with, who can back you up, who can know about your cases. I remember when I was trying to shy away from having my father as backup, I aligned with our cath lab director and I scrubbed. He needed to proctor my cases anyway. So I scrubbed on his day. And then other times when I was in the lab, I would just ask, hey, is he around? And you know what? And I felt shy doing it because I was a woman. I told myself that, oh, if I say that, they're going to think that I'm a woman and I need support. You know what? There were so many other people that were doing that, that were way beyond where I was in my training and my career. So I think sometimes we put judgment on ourselves and we hold ourselves to a standard that's not realistic. And I think one, one of the best things that I always feel is when I watch cases now and I watch them with my father, we go through live webinars and we always say to ourselves, look, they're struggling just like us. And look, they're in a team. And especially what you notice when you do things as a team-based approach is that cases go faster. Two minds are always better than one in the cath lab. And there's nothing like having another person there to help move the case along. What's interesting is now my patients will often ask if I have to give a case to my father, they always want to know if I'm going to be there too. And I think that that's one of the most incredible feedback lessons that I've heard from my own patients is that they actually love the collaboration. They love the discussion. They love what I have brought to his practice. And I was very proud of my father who recently has just been on an IVIS tear imaging first in a lot of his cases. And a lot of that came from our working together. And so I think that it's important for people to understand that it's a team-based approach. You're not going to be alone because it's a very intense field and it's very rewarding and help is always there. And I think it's important for us to know that. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Sani. I have to say, I think a lot of what you said echoes with me and echoes with a lot of other women about trying to ask for help and putting ourselves or like feeling like we need to kind of be better, especially when we're one of the few women that are around. And yeah, it's so great to hear that you've had such a great support system. And I think many of us do too. And we really shouldn't be afraid to ask for help and be a part of things, especially when it helps us and it helps the patient. I have a question for you that I would love to get kind of your perspective on. And as I mentioned before, I'm a first year cardiology fellow. So I've had a lot more exposure with procedures and doing things, especially first time being in the cath lab, first time putting swans, things like that. And I want to share a story about this. So Pretty early on when we were taking overnight call in the ICU, I was with one Dr. Amit Goyal overnight putting in a swan. And I'll never forget this night because it really made me think about something that I think many other people who are procedural struggle with. So we were going to put in a swan, use the micropuncture needle, went in and then we do it in kind of like a floral room. So we checked the micropuncture wire and the wire went like through the IJ. And then it crossed over to the other side. So for people who don't know the wires, when you put in an IJ, the line's supposed to go straight into the SVC. So when it crossed the other side, the first thing you worry about is that you went into like the aorta, which is going into the ascending aorta and then the descending aorta. So um, it was with me and we were just like, what, what happened? And we came out right away and we looked 
at the patient chart and the patient had dextrocardia. So it was fine. I mean, the heart was on the other side. I was in the right spot. I was in the vein. And that was the last time I never not checked the echo before I do any procedures. Now I always do. So that was a good lesson. But in those few seconds when we were looking at that, I have to say my heart just sank, mostly because the thought of having done something with my hands that could have harmed a patient. I mean, it it really kind of it shook me a lot. And I still think about it, even though nothing really bad happened. But so it, it makes me think, and I always ask people that I speak to who are proceduralists, like, how do you handle complications? And I know we, all doctors have high stakes jobs and we take our job seriously. And there's, you know, medication wise, you can do a lot to harm patients or like, you have to be careful no matter what. But I don't know, there's something about working with your own hands and doing something that feels, I don't know, like a lot more personal. So if you don't mind sharing, like, how do you work through that? How do you think about it? And what thoughts do you have on that? What a beautiful question. And what a beautiful story that you shared. And I think many of us have been there. I've been there as a trainee and scared. I know exactly what you're describing with that terrified moment. You just feel like you're so grateful that you have someone senior with you. But at the same time, you think that you can never do this again because you may have made such a crucial mistake. And what's interesting is that there is going to become a process of comfort that will be developed. I remember as a resident doing lines and then how that felt as a fellow and then how that felt as an interventional fellow. So one thing we have to recognize is that there is a true learning curve. When you're learning, you never feel like you're going to get there. I remember struggling with femoral access. And it's things that I would not struggle with now or that I would almost laugh at that I was even concerned about it, right? Working a manifold. So you have to acknowledge that there's a legit learning curve that's going to come from volume of cases. But exposure cases is really important. The more cases you do, the more cases you'll see. One of the things my mentors told me is the more cases you do, the nature of the game is that you're going to see complications. That's how it is. And the way to handle them, I think Dr. Ajay Karthanate says it's so great when he gives lectures on interventional training for fellows, is that being algorithm-based is really key and having the same set of routine so that when you start to deviate from that, when something changes in the room, it's important for you to have that algorithm of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And you need to prepare. One of my mentors told me to go into every case asking yourself what can go wrong. And it sounds like overkill, but it's very important to recognize where the difficulties will arise because we take a lot of good cases that go well for granted. And at the end of every case, it's important to reflect and say, okay, what could have gone wrong? Could we have had no reflow? Could we have lost the wire? Because once you do, once you have no reflow, once you lose the wire, you want to be prepared. So I think one of the strategies that I have employed, and I don't actually think my father enjoys doing this, but I love to create these hysteric scenarios of what could happen, what would go on. And I think what that's helped me with is just kind of jog his mind on what the algorithm would be. For him, it's innate. He's been doing this for 40 years. For me, it's not. I haven't seen every type of complication and managed it on my own. And that's the truth, right? And so I also think it's important to refresh yourself on managing those complications. So complications that I was seeing in an academic setting all the time and exposed to, I'm not necessarily exposed to. 
But I love, I think Dr. Perez Maraz has an excellent lecture on how to approach tamponade and how to do a cardiocentesis. And it's an excellent six minute lecture that I love refreshing on and listening to. So you have to be honest with yourself. You have to recognize what are the most common complications that I'm going to see? How do I manage them? How do I look for them? And who do I call for help? In this hospital, if I have this situation that happens, who's the expert? Who's the vascular surgeon? This is real life, right? Like you said. And you're taking care of real patients. So there's no ego here. At every single location, it's important to have someone that you can align with that can help you, whether in the cath lab, and to know who, you know, who is going to manage certain complications, such as RP bleed, is it IR, is it vascular, et cetera. So that's been something that's been really helpful for me. And then in terms of managing my own complications, debriefing. Debriefing is so important. You know, at JFK Medical Center, where I do a number of my cases, we have a cath conference where we debrief certain outcomes, and that's been incredible. And I remember I had a case of an edge dissection where everything went great. Perfect stent, perfect balloon angioplasty before that. And patient goes into the holding area, comes in, develops chest pain, has whopping SD elevations. I have to go back into the cath lab. And when I reviewed this in cath conference, I saw it must have been an edge dissection, which unbelievable because I had never had one. There was no plaque there. And it was one of the cases where I, I didn't even eye this afterwards. I think the discussion of working through your cases is really important. You can never leave a, a complication without asking yourself, okay, why did this happen? What could I do better? And how do I prevent this in the future? Wow. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Sani. And this whole discussion has been really inspiring, but also, I mean, we have been sort of chatting on the side here for full disclosure and we're just going, wow, like this really resonates with me. This is something that I really think of myself as and, and something that this is a tool that I can use. And we're just in our little group here. We are just so inspired by the thoughts that you shared in terms of work-life harmony, transitioning into practice, safety, We've really touched on a lot of subjects. So thank you so much. And of course, thank you to Zarina, Gralene, and Eunice for inspiring this amazing discussion. Hello, I am Jeffrey Lander, the president and governor of the New Jersey chapter of the American College of Cardiology. Both on the national level as well as locally, the college is committed to improving diversity, equity, and inclusion within its membership, leadership, the cardiology workforce, and beyond. As we work to improve heart health, a crucial component is including people who are able to provide a varied assortment of backgrounds, ideas, experiences, and perspectives. Diversity is an issue rooted in quality patient care and improving health equity amongst our patients. Here within New Jersey, we have recently restructured our chapter council to include a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. The committee aims to ensure that much of what we have just mentioned is implemented throughout our state chapter. We have fortified our already strong Women in Cardiology Committee and are looking forward to our upcoming Women in Cardiology Leadership Summit later this month. Within the state, we are excitedly planning community outreach programs as well. We are fortunate in New Jersey to live in a richly diverse state and aim to continue to improve diversity and inclusion within the practice of cardiology, as well as health equity within our state and beyond. Boop. Boop.